is actually from Aaron Sink, who said if nobody volunteers, he'll go after people. So that's, that's you know, it has nothing to do with us. We're not going after people, but Aaron will. Um, can I have a little more light in the room? That'd be great. If you helped, um, we had D-Now weekend for our teenagers. If you helped with that in any capacity, including you had a group of people come for an amazing race to your house, and you did that, could you stand so we could thank you for your, for your work this week? Please. Very good. Um, they're not in here in this service, but I am uh, really thankful that our church has an older generation that invests in youth as well. And if you had been here this weekend, you would have seen at least uh, six to eight just people that are in the older generation that have no skin in the game. They have no kids coming, nothing like that, but are so, but feel like it's so important to invest in kids that they were here helping out. I just think that's absolutely incredible to have that. And we need that. We need that generation to do that. And it's such a good example for us. And so I really appreciate that. It's very, very impressive. So just wanted to say that. All right. Um, we <laughs> are back in Leviticus. We're back in Leviticus. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I, li- I like Leviticus. Um, as you know, at first, you know, it, I don't know, it just wasn't one of my favorite books, but now it's one of my favorite books in the Bible because God was waiting on my five-star rating. Um, for real, right? But Leviticus is great. And to me, um, Leviticus is kind of like Russian nesting dolls. You know what a Russian, Russian nesting doll is? Like you take them apart and then you have little ones and it gets littler and littler and littler. But the thing with Leviticus is it, it works the opposite way. You, you think the book isn't saying something and then you unpack the little one and it becomes bigger. And then somehow or another it grows and it works in the opposite direction is how that works. At least that's how it's worked for me. Um, so I'll just tell you this just because it did in the first service. Uh, now you know that the Russians have influenced this sermon. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, do what you need to do. All right. Leviticus is a book that if really you just look at the pieces, you will get some of it, but you'll be lost. Like it, it, the, the richness is not necessarily in just the pieces. It's what the pieces are doing. It's kind of like a 5,000, 10,000 piece puzzle. You get one of those and you put it together. You put the pieces together, you work hard to put it together, and then you have the picture once you put it all together. The deal with that um, 5,000, 10,000 piece puzzle is this, you already have the picture on the box. So I don't know if you're like me, when I'm stumped with the puzzle, I look at the picture and try to figure out where that particular piece goes and sometimes can even make whole sections here because I know this color is here. Are you you tracking? You and I have that advantage when it comes to Leviticus. You see, the people that actually lived during the time of Leviticus didn't have that Um, that picture of what they were actually doing. They just had all the details and everything that they were doing. They did not see what it was actually projecting. They didn't see the theatrics of it, so to speak, of what was being presented. And so each thing that's in Leviticus points actually to what we're doing now in the New Testament. Um, and so the sacrifice, of course, is Jesus Christ and, and different things like that. And so now that we have this picture, we can take the box and go back to Leviticus and read through it and figure out how this plays out in God's plan to redeem mankind. So it, it's very interesting for, in that particular regard. I've told you before, I'll say it until the end of the service, sermon series, the best commentary for Leviticus is the book of Hebrews. And so in the book of Hebrews, it says this, they serve, Leviticus, a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. That means what we're dealing with in Leviticus is a shadow of heavenly things and a shadow of things to come. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. See, there wasn't a group of Israelites that met 
and said, look, we need to figure out something to worship and we need to put all this together. And so they decided to design something. That's not how it worked. God actually gave the instructions to Moses and they built the tabernacle. Now this is a picture of the tabernacle here. And this is what they were told to build. Let's look at one more Hebrew passage that says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, those realities are the little pieces. So they didn't quite know what they were doing, but they obeyed what God told them to do. And so they created this tabernacle. Now, everywhere that they went in the wilderness, this tabernacle was set up the exact same way, including directionally. So this would be the north. This would be the south. This would be the east. And this would be the west. So God said the entrance is supposed to be to the east, the back of it's supposed to be to the west, and that means the north and south. And so the children of Israel actually camped accordingly. And this is what that looked like. So here's the tribes. So when they left, they would leave in an easterly direction and they would go clockwise around and the temple would be in the middle in between the west and the uh, uh, south. Right? North? It didn't matter. Anyway, that direction. Okay. So that is the picture. So what happens, and we know this from the book of Leviticus, is that um, the people would bring in a sacrifice, and they would kill the sacrifice, and the blood would be poured around the altar, it would be maybe poured sometimes on this side of the altar or sprinkled, sometimes on this side, this side, but they would actually pour it also at the base of the altar. So you would enter in the east. There was only one way to enter. There was only one way to enter. You couldn't come through the north way. You couldn't come through the south. You couldn't come through the west. You had to go in the door. One door, one way. Why? Because God wants to make sure that you don't miss him. Aren't you glad there's only one way? You don't have to figure out which way is right, which way is wrong. There's only one. All the many others are not a way to heaven. So he made one way, he made it simple. And I'm thankful for that because most of us, including myself, would not be smart enough to figure out which ones were right and which ones were wrong. There's only one road that leads into the presence of God and God wanted to be with you so much that he touched down on earth and made a one way for you to fellowship with him. And so part of that fellowship is getting forgiveness of your sins. So that was the reason for the sacrifice. The priests would work in this area. And that way they would actually go in to what's called the holy place. And they would take the blood from here and they would sprinkle it on this side of the veil or the curtain. All right? And once a year, the high priest would take the blood into what's called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant, I guess it would be in the middle. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a mercy seat. And so they would sprinkle, and it's very specific in Scripture. They would sprinkle the blood on the east side of the throne of God, because the Ark was where God said his throne was. It's in scripture. And so they would put the blood on the east side here. So you can find all this in Leviticus chapter four. So they would sprinkle blood here, they would sprinkle blood here, and the blood would be here, and there's one entrance in. Now with that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter eight. Leviticus chapter eight. We'll begin reading with verse 22. It says this. Then he prepared the other ram, the ram of ordination. See, this is the point in scripture, if you remember, that the priests were being ordained. Okay? And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it. 
And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. So there's blood being placed on the right lobe. I know this is my left, but this is your right. The the lobe of his right ear, right thumb, right toe. Now, I want you to look at this picture. Which way is right? East. One way in. So you couldn't put the blood on the left-hand side because then you would be coming in from the west. And these are priests that are being consecrated to be close to God and enter into his presence. And so everything is on the right. And so this is on the right, this blood is on the right, and it was on the right of their earlobes, their thumb, and their toe. Same thing for the high priest who came in and offered the sacrifice and then left. When he was anointed, when he was ordained, it was this way, not this way. Very specific. It had to be on the right. Now, why is that important? Because Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he entered the tabernacle in the heavenly place where this was a shadow of what was actually there. And he took his blood, his blood, and he walked in to the holy of holies in the throne room of God. And it says that he placed his blood right here and then he sat down at the right-hand side of the Father because he didn't have to leave because it was a once-for-all sacrifice and it was one and done. Come on. And so Jesus, who obviously is our high priest, right, enters into here. So the priests were picturing Jesus, the sacrificial blood coming in, meeting with God, coming back. But man, Jesus just sits there. He doesn't move. He doesn't go out. He doesn't go other places. Aren't you thankful that we do not have to look for another Messiah? We don't have to look for that. He's already been here. I'm so thankful for that. So here's how it ties in with you and me. I am a priest. And guess who made me holy to be a priest? Jesus. And if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, you're a priest also. And it says in Hebrews that we can boldly approach the throne of grace because it's through Jesus that we can talk to God the Father and we can enter here. Your earlobe, your thumb, your toe, in a theatrical sort of way, has been stained with the blood of Christ to say that you are one of his priests so that you can walk in and present your petitions to him. That's great. But it's not only that. Check out this verse from Colossians. Colossians chapter three, verses one through two says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Well, where are those things that are above? Well, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Isn't that great? It's not? It is great. We seek the things in heaven, not the things on earth. Now, let me pause here a moment because I should have done this at the beginning. Let me just pause here. This sermon today is called the Leviticus cutting board. So what you are getting is stuff that I had to cut out of sermons in the past, and I just felt like I needed to present them today. Is that way? So this sermon doesn't necessarily have a line all the way through it. It's just a bunch of random type stuff that I left on a cutting board. This is one of those things. When we say that seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, there are other places people seek for things, aren't there? So um, in the back, go to the slide that says, whose are you? Who do you belong to? 
The background of Leviticus is this. The children of Israel were in Egypt and they were owned by the Egyptians. They owned them. And the Egyptians told them everything that they did, everything that they could do, where they worked, where they ate, where they lived. Their life was ordered by the Egyptians. When they were freed from slavery, guess who started ordering their life? God did. God started ordering their life. And they had a choice whether they were going to follow it or whether they were not going to follow it. This is the same thing. And if you read, if you read the New Testament, you realize that Egypt represents the world and its systems. And the freedom that we have in Christ represents a new way of living, a new ordering of our lives. We are either allowing ourselves to be ordered by the world in how we live, or we're allowing ourselves to listen to Jesus so that he can order our life in the correct way. It's one or the other. So who, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Do you really take serious what Jesus Christ did for you and the benefit that you get from being able to walk all the way into the throne room of God and pray to have that forgiveness? Do you really grab a hold of that benefit and then say, yes, my life needs to be reordered and there's no one better to do it than God. So I am going to follow him. So who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? And then earlobes, all right? Now, I have a couple other ones of these, and these are very quick, sort of, maybe. I'm a preacher. Preachers lie about that all the time. <laughs> so let's, let's do this one. Here we go. Incense only gives off a smell when it's beaten or burned or put under pressure. In other words, you have to put it through the ringer to get its beauty, to give it as a beautiful gift. We know from Leviticus that the incense that was used right here in front of this veil was made by the people outside of in the camp. And when they did it, they had to press it, they had to beat it, they had to get that incense out, and then it was burned here. It had to go through suffering in order to smell good before God. Now, when you and I first become believers, we don't smell too good. Can I just say this? Guys, when we work, we stink. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Right? We stink. I mean, we, we try to put on the deodorant and stuff, but if we're outside long enough, we really reek. Women do too, but it's at a different level, like a lower level than men. Like men just really, oh, come on, guys. Okay, women... Let me take a survey. Does your man smell bad when he's out in the yard and he's working? Yeah, it's okay. All right. Men, does your lady smell bad when she's out in the yard working, but you just don't want to say it right now? <laughs> we have one that has a solid mirror. Okay. So, so we stink like we stink. This is different. This is a stinking of sin. So what has to happen as we walk with God is that we have trials and tribulations that, that crush us and make us a better gift for God. Do you know that Jesus died for you on the cross? He valued you, he loved you, but he wants to present to God the Father a bride that is white as snow. And so your trials are meant to make you the best version of him that there is so that you can be more holy, so that when you enter, there's not as much stuff you drag in for forgiveness when you do. It's an amazing thing. Here's another one. Why so much repeating in Leviticus? Like you read through Leviticus and it's over and over and over again. Well, here's why. Back then they didn't have scriptures that they just passed out like we do. I mean, we, we pass out Bibles and we also have different translations and different versions of the Bible on our phones and our, and our devices. They didn't have that. So the repetitiveness was so that they could memorize it and keep it inside so that they could pass it down to their children, right? Aren't you glad that you don't have to memorize it and pass it down to your kids so that they'll have to memorize it so that they can pass it down? Aren't you glad it's a little bit easier? Yeah, yeah, okay, I am. Some of you, 
Maybe just, yeah, good for you. Okay, next. Why no hunting? This has bugged me forever. I really don't have an answer for this. The only answer I could come up with is that it's because hunting is actually bee poop. Now, I love honey. I do. I like the taste of it. It's very sweet. It's very nice. It, it's very nice. But that's probably the reason. Um, another reason that I thought about, and this was more serious than that one, is bees have a tendency to build um, nests in carcasses and in old trees and in dead things. Have you ever noticed that? That's where they build. So the law says that you can't touch anything dead. So maybe that was the reason that you couldn't have any honey. I think it's interesting that today, in today's world, we have made penthouses for bees that they can live in and go in and out of. Oh, come on, I've seen some of these in your yards. They're the little white things that are stacked, have a lid on them, and they go in and out here, right? Little bee penthouses. And they've all moved from the country to the penthouses. That's what we've been told. You can't find them wild anywhere. They've all moved into, you know, the penthouses. It's almost like bee communism, they do all the work out here and they come in and they do all this honey stuff and then the government lifts the lid and robs it from them. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, here we go. Next, why males? When you're reading through in these sacrifices, the first sacrifice you get to is make sure that it's a male goat or a male sheep. And immediately I stop and I think, man, where are the animal farm activists, like farm animal activists that are saying equality for sheep and goats, you know, with signs and stuff because the guys are dying. There's a commentator that says that it's because males were expendable. I do not believe that that's the reason. But I don't really know why, it, why it's a male goat and sometimes it's a female goat. I, I really don't know that yet. Um, I'm still thinking about it, but nobody seems to have a, a good enough answer that matches scripture. Is that fair enough? The reason I bring this up to you today is because I want to go here. God, in Scripture, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is not God the Mother, God the Sister, and God the Holy Spirit. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is very important because we have a lot of people preaching today that God is not only a father, but he's also a mother. That is absolutely incorrect. Absolutely incorrect. To be honest, if you pushed anybody in a corner, you'd have to say, hey, God the Father is spirit and he's neither male or female. God the Holy Spirit is spirit, he's neither male or female. And God the Son became a man and dwelt among us. If you push this all the way back in the corner, but in no way does God ever present himself as a woman in scripture. Now, one of the references that they often use to prove this is the woman and the lost coin because in that passage of scripture, it says God is like a woman that has lost her coin and she searches for it. What they're saying is, because it says God is like, then the woman, it must be saying that God is a mother. Well, that's not the case. That is absolutely not the case. The way that that story is like God is because he values, that woman values the thing that was lost. And she was willing to give up things to find that particular coin that was lost. The point of that passage is to say that just like the woman who valued the coin, God values you a sinner who is lost. If you really wanted to say that God was mother, God's a mother, you, had, you would have to follow that all the way through that parable and say that God loses things. Because if you're gonna say that God is a woman because this woman lost a coin and God is like, then you're gonna have to say that not only does he lose things, sometimes he can't find them and sometimes it takes him a long time to find them. I am here to tell you that the Bible says that God has never lost you. He has never lost you. And the concept of God is this. If God did lose you, you would go out of existence. It is by his power that you are here today breathing. It is by his power that you are living today that you woke up. God knows that you are here. So God doesn't lose things, but he knows that you are lost. You are lost because you were born in trespasses and sins and you were lost and you did not know where God was 
And so Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins and rose the third day so that you would have life eternal. He did that. And then he did something that is absolutely interesting. And people talk about this all the time and there's all kinds of sides to it, but here's the kernel of truth. God sent his Holy Spirit into the world so that you and I could find him. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, you and I would never find God. We would never find Jesus. So why males? I don't know. But what I do know is when you read your Bible, God wants to be called Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you better not do anything else. If you do, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. All right, next. God searches for people to do something new through. He searched for Abraham, wanted to do something new. He chose the Israelites, did something new. He chose David, he did something new. He chose uh, John the Baptist, he did something new. And he's still doing that today. I know that there's nothing new under the sun, you know, Ecclesiastes, I know that. But God can do things new in a new way. And so he's searching for people to do something new through. Next, water is a symbol of cleansing throughout the Bible. This is also in Leviticus. I really, yeah, I really wanted to dive into this and do a sermon about this and just tra- trace the water all the way to John the Baptist and then baptism. And I thought it would have been, been a great sermon, but um, my partner didn't uh, agree with it. So it's in this message right now. My partner is God. It, the message right now. But I do think that it's incredible that water is a symbol of cleansing. It's not a symbol of cleansing of sins, but it's a symbol of cleansing something else. Well, it is a symbol of cleansing sins, but it's something else as well. So that's something that you can, you can look up. But that was cut from Leviticus. Here's the next one. You can know where you stand with God. Here is how not to have anxiety. The further we get away from God, the more anxious we will become. So you can know where you stand with God. In the context of Leviticus, this is what is going on. There are people around the children of Israel that are serving other gods. They're following after other gods. And these gods, you would have to come with sacrifices, you would have to come with gifts, and you would hope that the gifts that you gave to these gods and the stuff that you gave to these gods were enough for you to get rain. If you didn't have rain one year for your crops, you, you worried that there wasn't enough, you didn't give enough, you didn't do enough to appease the gods so that they would send rain. You would do the same thing for the crop God, for the, for the weather God, for, for all the gods that they had that controlled the different things and environment. You would bring stuff to their religious centers to try to appease them because you never really knew where you stood with these gods. The difference between all of the world's religions like that and this one is this. You always know where you stand with Jehovah Jireh. You always know where you stand with the God of Leviticus, with the God of the Bible. You always know where you stand. And he has made it very clear where you stand. And by faith, it says in Hebrews, people did this and it was counted to them for righteousness because it was a shadow of Jesus dying on the cross and that's what they were putting their faith in and that is how they were saved. And today, it's the same way that we are saved. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your savior, where you stand with him is on, as his enemy currently, an enemy that he loves. But if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, you stand beside him as a son, as a daughter, as a priest, as a tabernacle, and is a blessed position to have. It is an amazing position to have. So you can know where you stand with God. This particular sermon was gonna go a little bit further with all of this. Here is how not to have anxiety. The further we get away from God, the more anxious we will become. So if if we're close to God, we're not anxious. If we're away from God, it is a red flag that we are not close to God. If we're anxious, if we're worried, if if we're not, you know, if we're wondering what is gonna happen and and it's really getting us down, that's a red flag that we're not close to God. And at that point, what you do is, is you pray and you get into the word and you get back to where you're close with God, because when you're walking with God, you don't have anxiety because he's bigger than you 
And he's bigger than anything this world can throw against you. And you know that he's going to take care of you in the storm. You can feel the storm, but you're not anxious about it. You live in the environment that has been dealt with you, but you're okay with it because for some reason this is happening and God is walking with me through this. Isn't that great? It's great. So you know where you stand with God. Next, God wants a small group of people that shows the big group how to live out the love of God to the world. This priesthood was a small group of people. They were given directions on how to live and what to do, and they were to be an example, a theatrical example to the people that lived around the tabernacle. This was in the center of the tabernacle, of the, of the camp. And so they were an example. And then these people were supposed to live like the priests were living so that they could be an example to the nations of the world of what happens when people are sold out to God and his ways. Today is no different. Jesus has the church and you, are, you and I now are that small group of people that are supposed to be living as priests in his tabernacles in this world so that the world around us will know about the love of God, that we would show them how to live. And if there's any moment that God's people need to live the love of God in their lives in this world, it is right now. It is right now. I believe that if Christians were doing their job, we would not have riots. Laying blame, but I am sort of. If we were doing our job. See, the people that are rioting and are doing this in their own mind, and I think it's a little twisted, but in their own mind thinks that what they are doing is loving, but it's not real love. It is Egypt love. It is love of a system of the world. And God's people need to show God's love to the world. That is the only remedy that this world has. You see, Christians, I believe, ones that live in the center of God's will are not racist. We can't be. We can't be racist. Why? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is everybody in the world that God loves and therefore I love everybody. And a church that is following Jesus is a church that is trying to reach the world in its community and the world in general, all nations, everybody. This is why we give money to Zambia because we're excited about Zambians coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. I don't care the color of their skin. I care that they're in the kingdom of God. And a believer believes the same way. And you have been told by your media, over and over and over and over again that you are racist. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you are not racist. We believe that Jesus died for everybody in the world. And the only way you can come to him is through the blood of the cross. It is not different for any other race. It is the same. There is one way for everybody, and we desire that everybody receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So when you hear it, reject it. They don't know what they're talking about. And you just keep living your life and showing the love of God to everybody around you. And if they want to lie about you, let them lie about you. They lied about Jesus. They lied about Paul. They lied about different people like that. You just keep living in truth and honor God the Father who is looking down and saying, hey, that's my boy, that's my girl. That's the way you do it, that's the way you do it. And he uses you to reach this world. Christians just have to quit getting sidetracked on this racist thing. It's driving me crazy. Driving me crazy. Even, yeah, I'll stop there, but it, it just, it's driving me crazy. Yeah, it's driving me crazy. Okay, next. 
That's probably the reason God didn't really want me to preach that particular sermon and he stuck it in this one because then I would go off on a little trail. Okay, God's children will not be good all the time. (laughs) God's children would not be good all the time and sometimes will embarrass the whole group. The whole group. Do you have anybody in your family that is like that? Yeah. Can we go one step further and say, can we think of religious leaders that we're like, man, I wish they hadn't have done that. That really doesn't shine good on the church. There were predominant pastors, predominant leaders, predominant whatever, and they did something and it just was, it's just embarrassing. So what do you do when somebody in your family is not going the way that they're supposed to go? And, and you know it. And, and they're just not being good. And what do you do when a religious leader falls? How, how do we deal with that? Well, to answer that question, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. <clears throat> now, to set this up, chapters one through seven of Leviticus deals with stuff here. Okay? Is everybody tracking? There's stuff here. We get to eight and nine, where priest or ordained, it's dealing with stuff here. Okay? So, right before this, the priests have had a um, seven day period of ordination. Okay? Now you need to hold on to that. Seven day of ordination. And on the eighth day, chapter 10 happens, okay? And this is what it says. Now, Dadab and Abihu, who was sad all the time, the sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now I cut this out of the, the uh, message that we had on this. And, and um, I just wanna say that as a father, I cannot imagine either one of my children dying and me having to go through that. Can, can you? How awful would that be? I mean, I, I don't mean this in any disregard, but your, your parents are supposed to die before you and then you have children and you're supposed to die before them. That's the way things are supposed to go, right? That's, that's the order of the world. But here, Aaron sees two of his sons that took this strange fire in, which we know wasn't fire from the altar. It was fire from somewhere else. And, and they took it in and they were killed by God. And so there is a embarrassment that we have just gone through a seven-day priesthood ordination and then my sons mess things up. My two sons mess things up. Everybody's watching, right? Everybody's watching. Isn't that when kids normally disobey you when everybody's watching? Right? Have you ever felt that? Well, then fill it on this level where he's supposed to be a representative of God. And and here are these two sons that just didn't do it well. And everybody in the camp knows it. Everybody in the camp is watching it. So in verse four, it says, and Moses called Mishael and Elpham, the sons of Uzel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, and Moses, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithmar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers and the whole household of Israel be well the burning that the Lord has kindled and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word 
of Moses. Now, there's some things in Scripture I just, I, I struggle with. This would be one of them. Your two sons have just died and you can't go outside the camp to mourn them. You can't, you can't put your hair out. You can't get down. No, you, you can't. You can't. Because God, God is doing something. It's, it's, a, it's a production. It's a theatric. It's a, it's a, he's showing people something. He's showing, showing people a truth. Now, now, sevens are used all the way through Leviticus, and here is no different. The priests concentrate themselves or ordain for seven days, for seven days. That seven days makes you think of stuff like creation, doesn't it? There was chaos, and then there was order on the first day. There was chaos, and then there was order on the second day, and order, and order, and order. And on the seventh day, God rested. And on the eighth day began the brand new week where Adam and Eve could actually enjoy their creation. This is God bringing things from heaven back to earth and touching down. And when they brought in a strange fire, they were taken out of Eden. Right? They were taken out of the camp. That's the parallel. In other words, God is saying, I dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden, and now I've decided to dwell with you. And for the first time in history, God is actually located in a spot. Come on, church. He's located in a spot. And on the eighth day, these people mess things up because you know, guys, that's what we do. You and I mess things up, don't we? We do things that are wrong. We do things that we shouldn't do. And so did these guys. So what do you do when people, believers, who are supposed to be representing this, do something wrong and they just can't be in the camp any longer. There is forgiveness, but they just can't be here. What do you do? Well, it seems from this text that you just keep going because that's the point. Look at verse eight. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink. By the way, there's only two times in scripture where God spoke directly to Aaron. This is one of them. Drink no wine or strong drink, you are your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, and it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations. You are distinguished between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel that all the statues that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. God is saying there is a job to do. And just because two people did it the wrong way, God is saying, I I'm going to keep going and I want you to keep going with me. That's what he's saying. So where, where else in scripture did God keep going? Well, Adam and Eve. They're created. Ate of the fruit. They're kicked out of the garden. And God kept going. Because God has a plan. And he kept going with them. He forgave them, but they couldn't live in the camp. They couldn't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. He forgave them, but God kept going. Where else did God keep going? Noah. The whole world was in sin. The whole world was in sin. Everybody, except for Noah. And God could have wiped everybody out, but he didn't. He kept going because there was a bigger plan. There was a bigger objective. There was something else that was going to happen. So he kept going. Sodom and Gomorrah. Who did, who did God take out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot. None of us would put Lot as one of the strongest believers in the Bible. Right? But he saved Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because God keeps going. 
And even in Lot, there was something that God saw and he gave him a chance to get back on track. He gave him grace and he kept going. Remember the children of Israel? They left Egypt and they're in the wilderness and Moses goes up on the mountain and they make a calf and God comes down. Moses comes down and sees it. And it's probably time for God just to wipe them all out because they're worshiping something else instead of him. What did God do? He kept going. Was there a punishment for that? Absolutely. But God kept going. God keeps going because God has a plan and that plan is redemption. And he knows if he doesn't keep going, it's done and everybody gets punished for their sins and everybody doesn't get to go to heaven. Nobody, nobody gets to go to heaven. God keeps going. So when a religious leader does something wrong and it reflects badly on us, what do we do? We keep going and we continue to show the love of God to the world. Do we mourn the fact that this happens? Yes. Do we ignore the fact that this happens? Absolutely not. But we keep going. You keep going. If a family member keeps, to go down, keeps going down a, the wrong pathway, you keep going for God. That's what you do. Because that is what's important. Because that is how you are a light to them. God is going to keep going. He is going to accomplish his plan. And at this time period, that is the side that you need to be on. You keep going with God. Right? You keep going with God. I know it's a struggle. And people don't act like they're supposed to. But you know what? You and, you and I don't act like we're supposed to either. Ethan, over here, I, I guess you did this on Friday. Yeah, he did this on Friday. Um, he, uh, he had Seth and I um, give him embarrassing moments that he could use as an introduction for his, his sermon that evening. My thought was I probably have already shared all of mine. Um, so, so I was trying to figure out what to share um, one of them that I decided I hadn't told anybody yet was um, I, I was in middle school. There was this girl named Jody Winfrey, and I don't know, we, we were going bowling. She was over at my house. I went to her house. We watched movies. We did a lot of stuff. And about six to seven months into it, Jody Winfrey, she looked at me and she said, um, Philip, why ha haven't you kissed me yet? And I said, why would I do that? And she said, well, we've been dating for six and a half months. And Philip said, we're dating? <laughs> yeah. But there's other stuff that I might not share with you. In fact, I wouldn't. In fact, right now, if I was to say, Aaron, you come on up here. And what I want you to do is a secret that nobody knows, a sin, a, a sin that would be detrimental to your character. I want you to share it with the congregation, and then you will never be able to come back in here again. You would not do that, would you? Wouldn't do that. If I was to go around the room and say, Dale, you come on up. I want you to share your, the thing that you don't want anybody in this room to know about you. And then you're, you're never going to be able to come back because you shared that particular thing, right? Um, if I was to do, let's do a lady. Lorena. Marina Hungerford, if you're supposed to come up here and, and share a deep, dark thing that you had done that would be embarrassing, like people would think differently of you because you shared it. You're a good husband, Steve, because he's saying there's nothing she's done wrong. Anyway, <laughs> if you were to share that and it would change the way people viewed you, you'd never be able to come back, right? And then over, over here, let's, let's just pick, pick somebody. Um, Brett. Brad, if you were to come up, right, yeah, and share, and it would absolutely change. You know, if you shared this thing that people would think of you differently than they do think of you now, um, you wouldn't share it. Do you realize that 
Number one, that stuff that you have done is in your past and it's forgiven by Jesus. And instead of annihilating you, he gave you grace. Instead of, instead of punishing you for that, he gave you mercy. He kept going. If you think about this particular father-son relationship, don't you think that the father is in heaven giving you grace even though you did something wrong and it's burning in his soul, right? That you did something wrong. He's, he's, not happy. he's not happy you did that, but he still loves you. He still values you. Aren't you glad that God keeps going in his redemptive plan? I'm thankful that Christ saved me a sinner and he hasn't left me that way. And each step of the way, he deals with the sin in my life and he keeps going. And as long, long as I'm willing to open my heart to him and say, Lord, just show me the next sin I need to take care of and, and let's get this done. The more step, the the closer I get to becoming into the image of his son. Because God's idea for you is to take you from where you are and present you as a pure bride to his father. So he keeps going and you need to keep going too. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stage you've given us. We thank you for these truths from Leviticus. I pray, Father, that you'll continue to work on people's hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Um, that there are people in the room that are thinking about family members that have embarrassed them. Um, I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll remind them that their value isn't really in those people. Their true value is found in you in you alone. Help them think on that and give them the strength they need to deal with that issue. Whatever else has come up in people's minds and hearts today, I pray that you will, you will talk to them, you will move them in that direction, you will mold their hearts and just do the work that only you can do. So we ask all these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm here up front for you if you need me and uh, we're gonna sing the words of this closing hymn. Let's stand. <laughs>